0: When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about a coach and a personal plan that give you 360 support? Join Anytime Fitness for just $1 today and get something real. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit AnytimeFitness.com.
1: Hello, Island friends. Let me tell you about Tim Eccles. Mr. Tim loves Georgia and helped keep our rates low. He knows everything about energy and has led by example. I hope you listen to his radio show called Energy Matters. Join me in supporting Tim.
3: Hey, I'm Tim Eccles. I'm vice chair of the Georgia Public Service Commission. I'm host of Energy Matters. My co-host, Casey Boyce from Decatur. Casey, how's it going? Good. Good morning to you, Tim, and good morning to everyone out there listening. Yeah, we've got a great show for folks today. Uh, It is a intellectually packed studio, I have to say. Uh, Dr. Orford from UGA Law, having studied at, let's see, uh, Columbia? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then... Uh, taught at Berkeley, Cal
1: Berkeley, and then where'd you get that law degree at? Oh, Columbia uh, was a law degree. ASU undergrad. ASU, that's ASU. right. ASU, that's ASU. A good school. It's good school. Uh, yeah,
3: yeah. And then Ryan Sanders. I mean Ryan, you know, a little here, a little there, a little Emory degree, a little UGA degree, and then just to make it fair, back to Georgia Tech, right? Which is which, right? The <laughs> masters. <laughs> uh, you got the two masters. Undergrad at UGA, so I'm a
4: Bulldog. Nice. Uh, masters at Georgia Tech, and then an MBA at Emory.
3: Uh, we got my uh, producer Logan Booker uh, here, uh, and uh, Logan had uh, spent time at UGA, graduated UGA Grady College, and Casey Boyce uh, degree from uh, master's degree from Georgia State, right? That's Casey, right. Yep. yeah. And undergrad, where was that, Casey? Colorado College, so College. out of the state, just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, you want to you want to get a continuing education degree today, folks? You've come to the right place and we're going to talk about what's going on out here in the energy world and I want to start uh, with this concept uh, that we call the integrated resource plan the Public Service Commission is in the midst of this and we created this in 1991 for Georgia we didn't create the concept but Casey the IRP or integrated resource planning that's been around for a while
2: yeah and the idea is really taking uh, a forward look at the needs of the energy system and being thoughtful about that planning so that it's not just kind of an ad hoc thing that, that develops. Not every state does it this way, um, but uh, given the state of the market in Georgia and the fact that you know the, the big power company here, Georgia Power, is fully vertically integrated and what that means is they own everything from the generation to the transmission to the distribution, uh, seems to make sense in this context. Yeah, Dr. Orford, you've had a
3: chance to live in New York and Arizona and California. You've seen different approaches to energy
1: energy planning. Are you a fan of the IRP process? I am a fan. I think this is uh, an opportunity, first of all, for a lot more public engagement and uh, participation in the discussions around what the future of energy looks like in from state to state. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity to get involved in the nitty gritty arguments over the models and projections that the utilities are using, particularly in a state like Georgia, where it's a vertically integrated utility. And otherwise, we might not have that insight into what they're up to. And Ryan, you've been kind of uh, on the other side of the
3: microphone there uh, as a, quote, intervener in the IRP. So the plan's put forward by the utility, is poked at by our staff, uh, and the interveners will provide expert testimony and commentary. What's it like to be an intervener in an IRP process? That's a great question. So we've intervened in now three IRPs and we
4: review all the documents that have been filed by the utility. We participate in Discovery, where we ask for additional documents. And then we provide feedback on the plan so that it can be improved by the public comment process. And uh, it's been working. We've seen great progress and and
3: great, very successful renewable energy programs approved in all three of the IRPs that I participated in. Dr. Orford, not every intervener has to hire an attorney to represent them, but most of them do, and especially the effective ones do. Why do you feel like having
1: an attorney in that process has mattered so much? That's a great question. And first of all, I think, it's because these are complex regulatory proceedings that are built on legal structures and understanding what those uh, structures are and how they work and how we can operate in them takes essentially legal training. Of course, also lawyers are just generally often pretty good translators of technical material into uh, communications that are both politically and legally uh, effective and persuasive. Casey, the commission,
3: the five commissioners in this case, sit as kind of judge and jury in the end on this. As you look at this IRP process and the public uh, meaning the non-legal trained public they they have input into this and then you've got what dr orford and ryan's talking about these attorneys who have this grasp of of the structure i mean which do you think is most important
2: the public or these interveners well, I mean, you can probably answer that better than I can, but that being said, I, I think one of the things that's unique about Georgia, and we've talked about it on the show, is that it's you know one of the few states where the Public Service Commission is elected, right? So you are elected, Tim, as a statewide constitutional officer, which means that you're also accountable to the voters ultimately, right? And so I, I think that structure gives you and your fellow commissioners uh, you know, a, a quite a bit better connection to the ultimate consumer of electricity or you know natural gas or whatever, than other states where the commissions are appointed, say by the governor. Right. Um, that being said, I think you know the the process that we just described, where a lot of the interveners are hiring attorneys to participate in the process. That's prohibitive. Like if I wanted to intervene as an individual citizen, I can't afford a lawyer to do that necessarily. Um, so I, I think that that balance that we've got of you know the the formal intervention process that really is a highly technical thing. But then also having elected commissioners where you hear from and are accountable to voters is good for kind of the the greater good of this process. Ryan, I did a, a webinar for Apogee the other day,
3: uh, Joel and Susan Gilbert, it's a, a female owned business, uh, and they do research. We featured them on the show before. And the topic of this webinar was called Regulatory Horse Trading. We talked about some of the trading that goes on or negotiating that goes on. Even looking at interveners as being a a part of a negotiating party. How do you view that when you're in the room going through the process and then as we approach the end and these settlement talks begin? So uh, to that,
4: uh, interveners are conduits of the public and the the interveners are generally uh, trade associations or advocacy groups and these are you know these are advancing uh, the public interest of, of, of various public groups and so we are a condiment to the public but you uh, there's lots of collaboration amongst interveners both public and private and there's horse trading. Uh, interveners work in collaboration um, and the outcome is never you know entirely acceptable to any one intervener but collectively you kind of move the ball forward uh,
3: for your industry and that's how it works here in Georgia Casey before there were IRP do you remember how things were done before that process happened? I was not in Georgia at the time, so no, I don't. Well, let me ask Dr. Orford, because <laughs> he's lived in New York and California. Uh, it's two states that don't really have a lot of regulated utilities. You, we got
1: these markets. How, how did these markets evolve, uh, Dr. Orford? Boy, I am uh, on the spot now. Um, they, well, we started in a world of uh, essentially vertically integrated utilities who are operating under what we call the Utility Regulatory Compact and are procuring uh, for themselves uh, fuel and producing electricity and are in essentially a, a relationship with their ratepayers that the public service commissions would oversee but would not necessarily get too involved with. As essentially in the 90s, this deregulatory process evolved and we started creating larger. Energy markets across the United States. Uh, I think we also saw that we needed to have a little bit more insight into how those markets operated in order to avoid essentially market failures, uh, uh, harm to consumers, particularly. And we see that we're still in that process today, where things have gone wrong recently and can go wrong. Um, and so it's been this—it's been this policy process and uh, market-driven process to some degree, all towards ultimately, uh, hopefully both achieving policy goals and saving everyone as much money as possible through the market.
2: And I I think just to to kind of expand on that, and we've talked about some of these other kind of market uh, mechanisms on the show before, particularly Texas, um, but there are other ways that utilities do this planning. So in Texas, it's an energy only market where, you know, generators basically are compensated based on the energy that they produce. And so that's how new generation gets built is that energy gets expensive every once in a while. And so people say, hey, you know, I can make more money selling into the market than what it cost me to build. Um, you've got other parts of the country um, where, you know, they also have what's called a capacity market, which is, I think, a little bit more analogous to what, what we do with the IRP here in Georgia, where there's sort of this look at what the reserves are, making sure that there's sufficient capacity for generation at any given point during the year. Um, but in those uh, other markets, there are actually payments for capacity. So it's not necessarily producing energy. It's just being available to generate energy if you're needed. And so, you know, I think what, what we do here in Georgia is through this IRP process, try to put in place some of the, the market-based mechanisms that, uh, or kind of an analog of the market-based mechanisms that happen elsewhere in the country.
3: Yeah, if you're just tuning in, I've got uh, Casey Boyce. That was his voice. Uh, my co-host from Decatur, Dr. Orford from the UGA Law School, and Ryan Sanders uh, from Beltline Solar. Uh, Ryan, I mean, if you look at other states and how solar's uh, faring around the country, do you wish that we had a deregulated market here in Georgia, or are you happy with the the market that we have? No, I think what we have now in Georgia is working for Georgia.
4: Um, I don't think, I, I can't envision another way of approaching the market that would be a better fit for our state. Uh, under the commission's leadership over the last eight years, we've embraced a competitive bid um, procurement policy that's been very successful and aligns with the virtues of our state. We, have, we still have our red or purplish state. uh, And these are statewide
3: elections. And so I think the competitive format fits our state well. When we come back, uh, I want us to talk more with the panel about the current energy landscape, what's happening with the Biden administration, the Russia crisis, how it's impacting it. I want to hear some predictions from our panel about what might happen in this IRP. Uh, I want us to talk about other states, what they're doing and why. So stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters.
0: Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show. Gas South has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good. Hey, Tim Eccles here, host of Energy Matter. Solar's growing like crazy in Georgia, and I
3: certainly say buyer beware. It's great to have companies like Creative Solar USA on the job. Russ, why do folks need to reach out to you?
2: Tim, we're going on to our 14th year, and we have the best staff and most experienced installers in the state to get the job done right.
3: You can find out more at creativesolarusa.com or call 770-485-7438. That's creativesolarusa.com. BMVW is the place in Metro Atlanta to get your used hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or fully electric car. They're located on the south side near the airport, but it is well worth the drive. Go online to look at their inventory at ev-hybrid.com and set up a time to see the vehicle or even drive it for up to three days. I don't know of anywhere else in Metro Atlanta that you can do that. That's ev-hybrid.com, the best deal in town. ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, Tim Eccles, back on Energy Matters, a studio full of brains, except for me, of course. Casey Boyce, my co-host, master's degree, Georgia State. Casey, how's it going? Good. This is a good conversation. Looking forward to talking about what's going on
2: in energy these days with our our guests. Yeah, Dr.
3: Adam Orford, UGA law professor, former Cal Berkeley Law School professor, ASU undergrad, Columbia. Welcome back, Dr. Orford. Thank you. Yeah, and he drives an electric car, too. Absolutely, Chevy Bolt. Yeah. Uh, And Ryan Sanders, uh, UG undergrad, uh, Emory uh, graduate degree, and a Georgia Tech graduate degree right is that enough yes sir yeah Uh, so and me just a little old triple dog uh here in the studio we've been we we were talking in the first segment about this thing called the integrated resource plan and it's something that was created in 1991 and you know casey had vogel one and two not gone over budget and had an imprudency ruling and some other things I don't know that the utility would have been pushing for an IRP but I think because they took a hit mm-hmm. uh, in the courts after units one and two were constructed I think going forward they really wanted to be guaranteed recovery a little bit more certainty a little yeah. more certainty and I think you know from a utility standpoint it was a safer play though they had to give up some of their autonomy, right, Dr. Orford, that they submit the plan, but then the five commissioners really
1: get the final say. I would say so, and I think that you know I didn't know that history that that this was a sort of an industry-driven request, uh, but it makes sense that both they get their uh, security, they get their consistency, and then the public also benefits uh, because they get a chance to look at the thing and comment on it, and hopefully, then it sounds like in Georgia, particularly, there's a settlement process, a long discussion that results in a settlement, which is not the case in every state. So I'm, I'm actually I uh, was very interested when I learned about that when I came here to understand how that negotiation takes place, and we'll see what happens in this IRP as we go through all of these hearings,
3: hear from these witnesses, hear from the public, hear from the interveners, poke around at this. There's always some motions kind of at the end by the commissioners and and usually a settlement of some
2: some kind. So we'll see. And- how too, that before goes. before we move on from the IRP, just really quickly for our listeners who are interested, all of these documents, so what Georgia Power filed and the motions of the interveners and the schedule for these meetings, this is all on the Public Service Commission's website, right? Yeah, this is not like backroom deals going on. This is, this is all, you know,
3: recorded
1: with a stenographer. I mean, Dr. Orford, it feels a lot like a court. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I was looking over those dockets, which are all online uh, just yesterday to sort of catch up on things. There is some confidential information that's withheld from the public, as it probably should be. Um, But overall, you can get a pretty good sense for what the information is that the utilities are using to make their plans, and uh, particularly the models and the inputs to the models that ultimately are going to decide what the grid looks like, what the resources on the grid look like. And we can talk about those in public as we should. And and, and I've got to say that plant shear, the large coal plant in
3: juliet georgia that when the public service commission did not give georgia power uh recovery on one of those units, that also, uh, you know, kind of exacerbated the situation and causing them to want to use an IRP process because they didn't want to build assets, Ryan, and then not get the money for them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Ryan, let me ask you, as we look at the energy landscape going on out here right now, I think a lot of people thought with President Biden coming into office that it was going to be like the greatest, you know, opportunity for green energy ever but there has been some stumbles and in the solar community right now I'm talking about the larger u.s solar community we've got an issue going on explain what's what's happening with this dumping well absolutely optimism was high when uh, this current administration was elected
4: um, there's been a lot of grid lack at the national level currently uh, I mean it's a tough business business environment for all sectors of the economy uh, including energy just recently I mean we are all seeing rising labor costs rising equipment costs, Monday of this week, uh, the Commerce Department uh, picked up a petition from an anti-dumping petition from a a U.S. complaint, uh, and this is going to cause a lot of disruption in our market, or potentially. It'll take 150 days to review, and currently 80% of the typical uh, supply of panels to the U.S. market has been cut off.
3: Yeah, so when panels can't get here, how does that impact on bidding on jobs and completing jobs? Do you already have all the panels you need warehoused? It depends on where you are in your project cycle. So if you've already bought your panels, you're, you're probably
4: safe. If you haven't, you're probably in a bind It's uh, supply and demand. And when you cut off 80% of the supply, then uh, the demand goes up and price goes up. So this is a kind of economics
3: 101. And as an industry, we are kind of caught in the political cost runs here. Dr. Orford, uh, we, we've heard a lot about Russian gas going into Europe, uh, particularly in Germany, and uh, I guess the dependency on that, not just for heating homes, but for running plants like the BASF uh, plant that, uh, that they told me about, and just on the German border, that would shut down without the Russian gas; they need natural gas in the process uh, that that BASF uses there. Are you hearing? Uh, anything about Russian gas and its impact? What are your thoughts on how that might impact the U.S., even though we're not getting any uh, gas?
1: Well, uh, first of all, just looking at the conflict in Ukraine as, uh, in part, an energy conflict and the oil and gas resources in the Black Sea, the conflict over the territory there and the offshore territory to do uh, resource development in Ukraine, uh, looking at the possibility of another pipeline through Ukraine and what that, uh, you know, that conflict ultimately is going to impact that. And uh, then we're looking at gas resources in Europe. I'm, I'm hearing talk about uh, additional exports across the uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, we're talking about increasing prices in the United States because of that, maybe increased production. This is a, a massive, massive earthquake in the world of energy. Uh, Casey, just down in Savannah
3: at Kinder Morgan, 10 trains, they call it, essentially, uh, Liquefaction lines. Yeah. Uh, they're exporting natural gas. It takes quite a while to fill up one of those ships. Uh, it doesn't fill up in a day. It's it's weeks to fill up one of those natural gas. Ships are. Are you hearing from some of your clients about either the panel issue that Ryan mentioned or the gas gas issue that Dr.
2: Orford was talking about? Yeah. So a lot of my clients um, are energy utilities. So not so much on the solar side because it's still a relatively small uh, portion of the generation mix nationally. Definitely on the gas side, right? And so just you know, brief history. I'm going to oversimplify things, but hey, we we're on the air early in the morning in a lot of our markets, so no need to get too complex here, but the U.S. has been one of the major natural gas producers in the world over the last couple of years due in part to the fracking revolution, right? We've got a lot of natural gas supply. The problem, which has been actually a benefit for us, is that we can't do anything with it except use it here. So, not only does it take a long time to fill up those ships, but it takes a long time to build LNG export capacity. And so, we had all this natural gas, it couldn't go anywhere. And so, our prices for a long time were artificially low and artificially stable. Again, really good for us because whether we use natural gas in our home or use it to generate electricity, prices were low. Well, now we've got some of this export capacity that's come online, and we're seeing our prices starting to stabilize with the rest of the world, which is both higher and more volatile. And certainly, the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, didn't do anything to help the the price uh, uh, issue. And so we're seeing, you know, my clients are very concerned about the impact to their customers of the cost of natural gas, which has been up substantially over the last year.
3: Ryan, one of the things the commission has done through the years since we've done solar since 2013 is we set this ceiling on price, not to go over the avoided cost of energy. So if natural gas is going up and other, and other fuels are, are causing our avoided costs to rise, do you feel like solar with some of the, some of the headwinds that you've just described with the, the dumping of the panels and, and that kind of thing, is, is solar going to be able to meet the threshold and be under the avoided cost or is this going to impact it?
4: Well, there's a lot of factors involved in the answer to that question, but right now the industry is is certainly struggling to, to come in underneath that threshold, that avoid a cost ceiling. And uh, it remains to be seen, I'm not sure exactly which factor might drive us over or if perhaps the market will respond once again and stay under, but uh, it, it's probably gonna be a combination of, of factors, including location, um, penetration of solar on the grid, fuel cost, uh, panel costs, labor costs. There's a lot that goes into it, but.
3: It remains to be seen if the market can still come in and deliver value to the ratepayers. Right if you're just tuning in, I've got my co-host Casey Boyce here, Dr. Adam Orford from the University of Georgia Law School, and Ryan Sanders from Beltline Solar in studio. We're talking what we always talk about—energy—but we're talking policy. We're talking about some of the activities in the world. Just another couple of minutes uh, in this segment. Another minute, actually. So let me just ask any of my any of my panelists, what are you hearing? From other states and how they're responding uh, to the to to some of the the, the crises that we have,
4: I, I can speak for for renewable energy. So we're seeing this across the board. I mean, ye verily, solar is a hedge against fuel price volatility and inflation, but it all depends on when you get that solar onto your grid. And so we're seeing utilities across the Southeast and the rest of the nation take steps to A, increase the penetration levels um, their grid can, can handle, and to get as much solar on as they can while the prices are good. Although we are currently, like everything else, climbing up the cost scale. Um, hitherto for the last 10 years, we've been falling in price. Yeah,
2: last 20 seconds. Casey? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just reacting to those increased energy prices. And, you know, not only on the generation side, like Ryan just talked about, but also giving customers programs that can help them better manage their bills when those cost increases do come through. Hey, when we come back, I want to find out what it's like to be in Dr. Orford's class uh, at UGA Law. Uh,
3: what What's he expecting students to learn and why? I want to talk to Ryan about... Uh, about what he's learned from his three degrees that he's got. And Casey, uh, I want to hear about some of the, the things you're learning about rate payers. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Logan Booker here, producer of Energy Matters. And I want to tell you about the Advanced Power Alliance. For more than 20 years now, the Advanced Power Alliance has been leading the energy transition in America's traditional energy states. They advocate for wind energy, solar power and energy storage, all while partnering with traditional resources to ensure that America has abundant, affordable, cleaner energy to power our homes, our lives, as well as our economy. With the growth of solar and advanced storage and power generation technologies, every state now has the opportunity to be a leading energy state. Advanced Power Alliance is proud to partner with the Georgia Large Scale Solar Association and work with the Public Service Commission, Georgia Power and their customers as Georgia continues to be one of America's leading renewable energy states. You can learn more about the Advanced Power Alliance at PowerAlliance.org. That's PowerAlliance.org. Reducing
3: pollution from the transportation industry is an important goal, and few alternative vehicle fuels offer the distinct advantages of compressed natural gas. I myself drive an F-150 C&G pickup. Marlin Compression, part of Marlin Gas Services, is helping to usher in this clean energy future to the Port of Savannah, too. Not only is Marlin Compression a trusted provider of CNG for fleet fueling, they are also working with Port Fueling Center on a state of the art CNG truck fueling facility. Learn more about the distinct economic and environmental advantages of using natural gas trucking fleets of all sizes and explore all of marlin services by visiting marlincompression.com that's marlincompression.com calculate your savings today hey tim Eccles, back uh energy matters here with a Studio full of really bright people. A lot of graduate degrees in this room. Casey Boyce, my co host, uh, Georgia State Panther graduate degree. Dr. Orford, undergrad from ASU out in the sunny Arizona, then Law School Columbia, New York City. Ryan Sanders, a local boy here in Athens, uh, undergrad UGA, and a couple of graduate degrees from Emory and Georgia Tech. And I've got a couple of graduate degrees myself from the University of Georgia. So, hey, buckle up. We want you to get your continuing education credit right here in energy today. And speaking of sitting in a classroom, Dr. Orford, you teach at UGA Law, and I had a chance to come in and speak to one of your classes. But what is it like
1: to be in your class when you're teaching things about energy? So, I teach two classes right now I teach renewable energy law and policy, and then environmental law, where we also get into plenty of energy topics. I can't say exactly what it's like for the students, although uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to learn soon. Um, But basically, what I hope for them to learn, first of all, is the lingo and the, the, the existence of all of these issues. We, when you talk about energy, live in a world where we take for granted that everybody else understands what's going on. And in fact, that's just not true. Most of these students don't have an energy background before they get to the class. So there's a lot of bringing them up to speed on what's going on. After that, it's about understanding that whatever they might think the right thing to do is there is another side to that Argument and there are trade-offs, costs and benefits to everything. There are multiple reasons to take any given policy approach, and helping them both see that world of argument and then decide where they want to fall in it based on whatever decision tools uh, are available to them. That's that's my primary goal. Well, and I imagine too, Dr. Orford, that there's um, probably
2: you know some components of just you know rigor of thinking, right? Sure. And you spoke to that a little bit, but also like flexibility. And I'm thinking back to what Ryan shared in the last segment about. Previously, you could kind of assume that solar prices were going to fall forever, right? And you know, we're we're seeing that's not the case, right? And and so the energy landscape is constantly changing. And so you don't necessarily like set in in your ways, you know, this is what I'm going to do for the next 50 years, right? But it's like, how do you make some smart determinations
1: in this system as it dynamically evolves, right? And what I would say is that one of the great things about particularly renewable energy is that it's a state level legal inquiry and so there's always the states of the mm-hmm. laboratories of democracy there's always an opportunity to look at multiple ways to do the same thing uh, under different circumstances so I can take the California model which by the way it continues to change and I can take the Georgia model and I can take the New York model and I can have students look at all three and then understand maybe how they got to different places, how they maybe are achieving the same results in different ways, and challenge them, whatever they think the right way is, to think about whether or not the other way would work as well.
3: Ryan, I don't know if you remember taking a progress report home to your parent uh, parents to sign, but you don't really do that in college, but you know, back in grade school or junior high, you did that, and COP26 in Glasgow, this past year was kind of one of those moments I'm told I wasn't invited to be a part of the U.S. delegation unfortunately I'm in the wrong political party from what i have been told by my british friends by my german friends and others is that cop 26 as these countries went to this u.n climate conference which uh, is the kind of the conference after the paris accord everybody remembers the the paris accord probably but they got there and they were giving they were given this progress report on how they were doing on their climate goals And a lot of people went home with C's and D's because they've been closing nuclear reactors, having to replace it with something, a dispatchable energy. In Germany's case, uh, a lot of coal, brown coal, uh, lignite coal, uh, and in other countries, gas. And they, they weren't making the kind of progress that they needed to to be net zero by 2050 and so these conferences do serve as kind of a progress report for how folks are doing and we we've got a lot of work to do. Certainly. I mean, if we're looking at the Georgia market and looking for
4: a progress report, I think the utility really should be applauded because it's been a remarkable transition from the king of coal in the 70s and 80s to a leader in the renewable energy space and really in the grid management space. So they're doing a remarkable job. Um, We still have a long way to go, but we are moving towards a a reduced carbon or carbon-free energy market much faster than
3: anybody would ever have predicted for, uh, for the state of Georgia. So Casey, does the political party, in this case, when it comes to green energy, clean energy, uh, carbon
2: neutral energy, does it have the impact that most people think it does? Probably not. I mean, I think what what Ryan's speaking to and, and what Dr. Orford spoke to in terms of kind of the different approaches to renewables, right, is is that it's kind of a realpolitik thing, right? It's a, it's about the results at the end of the day and there are multiple ways to get there. And I think, you know, the progress report and what you're pointing out from the, the COP is that it's really easy to say we're going to be carbon neutral by X date. It's really hard to do. And, you know, we're even seeing that right now, right? With the gas prices, you know, people are paying to fill up their tanks. Um, that's pain in people's pocketbooks, right? And so addressing that means drilling more oil so that the prices come down because it's a market. Well, that sets us behind in terms of transportation electrification, but it, you've got to kind of manage those things hand in hand. So it, it's difficult. It's messy. Um, I, I happen to believe that, you know, no one political party has the answer. Right. Dr. Orford, Ryan, you both have, you know, a
3: graduate degrees and we've all learned a lot in our graduate classes, but you can learn things out there experimenting with technology. And that's, I, frankly, I've learned more through my
1: anecdotal use. Has that been the case for you, Dr. Orford? Absolutely. I've learned more, first of all, on the job and as an attorney, you have to go to law school before you can be on the job, but I didn't learn about how a coal-fired power plant really worked until I went into one. Uh, I didn't learn how wind farms are constructed until I watched one get built. And so these are, these are uh, real world, that's what I love about environmental laws, you can't get away from the real world. Same with energy, it's always there, it's always something that if you don't uh, go out and look at how it's getting done, you're not really gonna understand it. Ryan, I often
3: say to teachers, oh, I wish you could take your kids on a field trip to any power plant, uh, whether it's a nuclear plant, a coal plant, a gas plant, a biomass plant. Just go and let them see how big this is and how difficult it is to do this at scale. Have you learned a lot out there in the field? Well, absolutely.
4: So I've invested a lot in my own education, but I will say the tuition I paid for the lessons learned in real life have been much higher, much greater than (laughs) the tuition I've to academic uh, universities here in the state of Georgia. But yeah, uh, the the lessons you learn on the job, actually developing these projects and selling energy to the utility are uh, certainly um, uh, more impactful and and really kind of color your your understanding of the situation much,
3: much greater than you would find in an academic setting. Casey, we talk all the time about all that we've learned about EVs from driving it and how it scares me to death to have non-EV drivers setting EV policy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> folks that, you know, that that have never experienced range anxiety
2: or they, they don't understand some of the things that we've experienced. Have you learned a lot out there in the field? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I talk to my clients all the time about some of these new shiny objects and, you know, maybe they're not so shiny anymore. They're becoming more mainstream. And having had personal experience for now, I don't know, eight years as an EV driver, having solar panels on my roof, doing geothermal and energy efficiency, efficient home, playing with some smart home technology, all of this stuff is really helpful to have firsthand experience to say, what's it like as a customer?
3: Dr. Orford, how do we get students coming through your classroom and other classrooms at the University of Georgia and other schools, how do we get them to have these type of anecdotal experiences so that they are
1: smarter, and not only how they use energy, but how they think about energy? Well, first of all, I think development of undergraduate courses in energy is really important. I think that in all of our curriculum, focusing on literally providing imagery and providing opportunities to go on field trips so that they understand what exactly is happening, Rather than just reading uh, textual descriptions, is very important. So multimedia incorporation, uh, and ultimately, then you know, there's UGA extension. There are opportunities for uh, students to get involved in going out to, for example, things like what you run, the Energy Roadshow, which I know has been very successful, uh, and and go, uh, you know, understand that those are options, uh, so that when they make the decision of their first car that they're going to buy after law school, maybe they think about the EV a little bit more carefully. If you're just joining
3: us, that was Dr. Adam Orford. He's a professor at the University of Georgia Law School. Casey Boyce, my co-host. You hear him every week from Decatur and Ryan Sanders here uh, from Beltline Solar. Dr. Orford, you and I had a chance just in our last minute here to go out to Plant Vogel, do our, do our own little field trip. Uh, and because you had not seen it, you just you had just come in here from California to start teaching. What did you leave that
1: experience with that day? I walked away incredibly impressed with the technical prowess that I saw on display and the, frankly, 6,000 people that had jobs and were working on building that facility. Of course, I've read the regulatory reviews and I know of some of the financial troubles that the plan has had. And nonetheless, I was excited by the initiative and the daring of trying to build something like that in a a country that frankly has not committed enough political and financial resources to supporting that kind of energy development. Just in our last minute, Ryan, we recently heard on a
3: show from uh, Southern Oak, a Mitchell County solar array, uh, the older gentleman who owned the land, who was just advocating for solar on our airwaves, uh, just how much he loved it. there's a lot to be learned at a solar site too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I tell you, one of the
4: most profound impacts of the solar program that has taken place here in Georgia is the impact on the local landowners. Um, If you can transition your farm from um, row cropping to a, to a solar lease. Um, it allows your farm to expand and hedge against uh, you know the commodity
3: pricing of your industry, and it's it's really a win win for the the landowner, the county, and, and the project itself. Well, when we come back, one more segment with our experts. So stick around. I'm Tim Eccles, listening to Energy Matters.
2: Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care.
3: Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters, here with Jeff Pratt of Green Power EMC. Jeff, more and more EMCs are offering solar to their members, and you're seeing it grow like crazy across rural Georgia.
0: Tim, you're right. Co-ops in Georgia are doing a great job of deploying solar across the state. In fact, they're leaders in the country with respect to engaging customers and deploying large-scale solar to benefit all their members. Hey, contact your EMC and
3: ask them about their solar energy policy, or just Google Green Power EMC.
0: This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and, of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth-Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. Hey, Tim Echols back on Energy Matters. One more segment with our very brainy
3: studio guest today, Casey Boyce. You always hear him here from Decatur. Casey,
2: how's it going? Good. This is great conversation. Hope folks out there are learning uh, some uh, some things about energy from our great guests here today. Casey, we're going to have to print up some continuing education certificates for,
3: for folks listening because <laughs> (laughs) Adam Orford is here from UGA Law and Ryan Sanders, um, a degree both from UGA Emory and Georgia Tech. Well, in this last segment, uh, I want to talk about a question that was raised to me recently at a ribbon cutting I did with Siemens, the German company, uh, and their Peachtree Corners office. They designed a new type of EV charging structure. It looks like a big archway that will just uh that will just keep going you can keep adding pieces to it like legos kind of like a modular thing a little modular thing and they stood this up pretty quickly they're very excited about rolling this out particularly to companies like amazon uh, and others who might be having rivian vans or other electric vehicles and charging them uh, you know during the night so let me ask you first casey and i want to ask our other guests this as well is the grid ready for
2: electric vehicles yes and no um so the yes and again this is very broad brush but capacity factor of the grid which means the percentage of the total capacity that's available that's used on average is about 50 percent. which means we can double our electricity use just with the infrastructure we have again varies on a local basis you might need more generation you might need to upgrade a transformer but in aggregate we've got the energy available. The no is that it also depends on when those EVs are getting charged. So if those EVs are getting charged all at the same time, say when people are getting home from work and they're cranking the AC in the middle of the summer, then we got some problems. But if we can get those EVs charged during off-peak times overnight, and you know Georgia Power has got a great EV time of use rate that gives you a much, much cheaper rate overnight, then we should be able to manage that. And, and there are also companies that are working on dynamic management of EV charging that allow you to ramp up and down the charging so that you don't, you know, overextend a given, you know, uh, transformer or distribution line or things like that.
3: Dr. Orford, I'm holding in my hand a Metro card from New York City. Do you brings, recognize this? brings back a lot of memories. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I was in New York recently meeting with Siemens there, uh, their vice president in charge of charging infrastructure across the U.S., He told me that the analysis that he did for the Transit Authority regarding just their buses in the five boroughs would require the electricity of two of the nuclear units that New York recently closed. And so what what I'm wondering is, how can we be closing plants and talking about electric transportation in
1: the same sentence? So... First of all, Casey, what you said, not only do we, we are sort of not ready for entirely for EV charging, but we have to think about renewables integration and autonomous vehicles and additional uh, storage and a vast range of new resources coming online. uh, And trying to figure out how to fit all that together is complicated. Uh, Shutting down nuclear power plants, yeah the, if you're looking for carbon low very low carbon electricity that might not be the best path forward many people disagree about that and to bring it back to our discussion of uh, the Georgia Power IRP uh, my question when I read that primarily was where's the load growth from transportation because right now I saw about a 0.8 percent was their basic uh, I know they have some scenarios but their basic assumptions were pretty low load growth for the policy goal of electrifying say 25 to 45% of our fleet in the next 15, 20 years. So uh, I say as much clean energy as possible and as much electrification as possible, the grid can do it and it's gonna take a lot of work to get us there.
3: Ryan, as you've put a lot of solar in South Georgia, and now we're hearing about issues with getting this energy back up north where we need it and maybe curtailing solar in South Georgia for future uh, development. I mean, you've learned a lot about the way the grid works uh, as you've you know, uh, placed solar across our state. Do you think the grid is ready for EVs? Well, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the market's mobilizing to achieve that work or finish
4: that work. But you know, there's sometimes a disconnect between policy outcomes and business needs. And I see that we see that across the country, We're more in alignment here in Georgia than we are in other places, and bringing it back to the IRP, when you see the inclusion of a huge amount of storage in this, in this most recent IRP filing from Georgia Power, that's a step in getting the grid ready to handle the EV
2: transition. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, right? Because when you look at EVs, they're essentially mobile storage units, right? And so, you know, part of the, the flexibility that they potentially can play is in soaking up some of that sun when it's overproducing versus other needs or, you know, cutting back on their charging when, you know, maybe you've got an afternoon storm that's, you know, reducing solar power uh, in a a local area. You know, do we have the technology today, like at scale to do that? Not really, right? But, you know, it's certainly possible. And there are folks that are working really hard on that and building that flexibility into EVs allows us not only to electrify our fleet, but also to manage a greater percentage of renewables on the grid.
3: I mean, Dr. Orford, maybe this is the moment when you want a state with a regulated utility that uh, that can spend the money on the transmission and other upgrades that they need, and get the recovery for it instead of having to fight uh, to get all of this, or, or wonder if they're going to be able to do this kind of thing.
1: Well, I think that, like we said before, there are uh, different ways to go about getting the same result, and whether or not we have the vertically integrated uh, regulated utility in Georgia or differently organized utilities in other states, uh, they are all trying to accomplish that same goal. And we are all trying to figure out how to use our systems to both electrify as much as possible and reduce the carbon uh, impact of our electric generating resources. Casey got a call the other day from a professor at Georgia Tech,
3: uh, Ron's, one of Ron's alma maters, uh And she has Come up with uh, a system she thinks will provide for some tariffs for commercial vehicles to use a time of use rate for electric vehicles. We currently don't have that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have it for individuals like yourself. Um, What do you think about the idea of giving an Amazon an incentive to charge at 11 o'clock at night instead of at 6 o'clock? Well,
2: I I think there's some value to it, but I also think that there is a little bit of a risk because – if they're responding purely off of those economic signals, then you have the risk that all of those Amazon delivery vans, assuming they're electric, are starting to charge at 11 o'clock or whatever, and that's gonna cause a big spike on the grid. Um, In addition, when you get more people, so you have Amazon that's doing okay, you add in UPS, you add in FedEx, you know, then all of a sudden, your load profile shifts and you've got that big spike at 11 p.m. when everyone's turning on. Right. And we've seen that in California where they've actually had to shift the time of use windows because people changed their behaviors. It changed the load curve and the grid couldn't support that. So, you know, I think again, I think there's value in providing some of those economic incentives. But I think if we're really looking at scaling it, we need to be thinking about flexibility more than kind of the blunt hammer of a time of use. Yeah, what are you all hearing about battery
3: chemistry? I, I know that, I mean, I wasn't a chemistry major. I don't know much. About it, but I know you know my electric cars have lithium-ion batteries in them. But I'm, you know, dealing with BYD bus company. They have the iron phosphate battery. I know the late Don Panas was trying to do a lithium titanate battery in race cars. I mean, Casey, there's
2: a lot of choices out there. There are, and all of the different battery chemistries have different characteristics. So they might be more suitable for you know an EV, or they might be more suitable for you know home battery storage or grid scale storage. Um, and so there's a lot of experimentation that's happening out there i mean this is one of the things by the way that's really exciting about batteries is that unlike gasoline it's not dependent on one source right so a lot of battery makers have said you know cobalt's problematic or nickel's problematic we're going to reduce the amount of that in our batteries they can do that and still have something that performs well well, I want to do a little lightning round with
3: y'all oh. here at the end of this segment, the end of our show today. So it's just, just a, a quick a quick answer. If you don't know, you can just say, I don't know, or I haven't decided. But uh, the first question is, what is going to be most likely your next EV? It might be six months from now, or it might be six years from now. Uh, Casey, what's
2: going to be your next EV? Well, money, no object, This uh the porsche tycan sport turismo it's their electric wagon and that's a nice car we had one out at uh,
1: road atlanta last fall yeah that was cool dr orford you're in a chevy volt now chevy bolt bolt yes which just got a new battery uh thanks to a recall thank you chevy uh but uh i won't give any brand names but it's going to have a dc fast charger in it Uh, dc fast charger all right Uh, ryan how about you so i'm currently driving a hybrid and i've never driven
4: a purely ev vehicle um That said, um, I would likely be opting for some form of a Tesla because I think it's important to support American auto manufacturers.
2: Mm -hmm. What about you, Tim?
3: Yeah, so I've got the Chevy Volt, which I really like the plug-in hybrid, uh, and I like the, uh, the Nissan Leaf. I'm driving an older Leaf, my wife, But I think I want to try a Tesla or a Rivian next. Mm, I I think I'd I'd like, if the Rivians are ready and I can get one, I'd like to do that to support uh, Georgia and the manufacturing. All right, just another minute here. So this is your best guess. So what is the year, your best guess, that solar shingles hit 25% of market share in the U.S., that's above architectural shingles or, or asphalt shingles. What what do you think the year's going to be when they hit twenty five percent? They're probably at like zero point one so 25% now. Twenty five
2: percent of the roofing market. Yes, yes. Twenty forty. Dr. Warford. Twenty thirty seven. Ryan. Hopefully, a long way out. I don't think that's the most
4: efficient way to capture energy with a solar panel. Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be out there twenty fifty. All right. How about the year that EVs hit twenty five percent of market share? got to be quick here. Wrapping up, Casey. Twenty twenty five. 2027. 20, 25. I'm going to say 2030. All right. Well, y'all, this has been fantastic today uh, with these brainiacs in the studio. You can always go to WGAUradio.com and just click on demand. You can hear any of our back episodes or subscribe uh, at any podcast platform uh, at Energy Matters with Commissioner Eccles. Well, you guys, I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thanks for listening to Energy Matters.